Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it on just about a daily basis for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 84 of History of the Marine Corps, World War I, Introduction, Part 1. Our last episode reviewed Marine activity in China during the Boxer Rebellion, and we laid out the reasons why the U.S. was in China in the first place, and also covered a couple of battles and introduced a young Smedley Butler and Dan Daly. This episode gets into World War I. There are a few timelines I'm fascinated with in Marine Corps history. Marines serving on ships during the 1700s and early 1800s is always an interesting time. There are a lot of firsts during these battles, and reading about how the Marine Corps earned their reputation brings a lot of pride. World War I is another timeline I'm fascinated with. The substantial improvements in technology resulted in it impacting every facet of the war. Weapons were more advanced, which led to more detailed strategies. Industrialization resulted in more machinery being produced at a faster rate. And better photography resulted in more advanced propaganda. Photography also gave us a glimpse at what war was like at the time. And some fantastic images provided us with an idea of what troops were facing during the Great War. I'm excited about this part of Marine Corps history and we're going to spend a lot of time discussing World War I. This episode introduces many events leading up to the war, and although you could probably point to events happening a lot earlier, we began in the mid-1800s, with the rise of nationalism in Europe. Empire started to crumble as a result of nationalism, and the conflicts that took place during this time would end up with the world going to war. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is often viewed as the start of World War I. His murder might have been the straw that broke the camel's back but the tensions in Europe had been brewing for decades prior. The events leading up to World War I are important to understand, not only because they set the stage for the Great War, but the consequences also play a role in many of the global problems we hear about in the news today. In the mid-1800s, nationalism became popular in Europe. The American and French revolutions sparked a fire in Europeans, and in 1848, uprisings began to pop up throughout the continent. 
This series of events is appropriately named the Revolutions of 1848. The political system of a single person ruling a kingdom for their entire lifetime was becoming irrelevant, and Europeans were tired of being ruled by monarchs. They wanted independent nation-states. When an industry or economy is no longer working and begins to disrupt employment, it is known as economic dislocation. This scenario also played a role in European uprisings, and the rise of industrialization was disrupting the status quo. Many people working on farms or artisan jobs, such as furniture making, clothing, or tools, were being automated by new machines. And the economy was no longer applicable to the progress of Europe. New technology was putting people out of work, something we're currently seeing today, and citizens became more politically active. Their solution was to push back through a revolution. Protesters wanted equality, and although the definition of equality depended on social classes at the time, topics such as universal suffrage, constitutions to govern their land, better working conditions, and other remarkably similar issues to those we see today were demanded. This time also brought new ideas, and Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels issued the Communist Manifesto. Marxism became extremely influential in Europe, and like what we see today, revolutionists adopted only certain theories in the pamphlet. In addition to a couple of ideas presented by Marx, the demands from Europeans were for a constitutionally directed government, to end oppression and censorship, and to have a true democracy. European citizens wanted more rights, and protection of those rights. In short, the European people simply wanted more power. But the uprisings weren't intended for everyone. Only a few groups were included in Europe's revolution, and many were still discriminated against and thought of as unworthy of rights. A big part of that group was the Jewish people, and this mindset would play a big role in future events. Ultimately, this revolution would fail, and close to 100,000 people were killed in the Austrian Empire alone. Empires in Europe were becoming inconsequential, and throughout this turmoil came new conflicts that changed the control of every empire on the continent. In 1859, Austria-Hungary invaded the Kingdom of Sardinia. The decision to invade resulted in the Second Italian War of Independence and was an important part of the process of Italian unification. With the help of French forces, Sardinia defeated Austria-Hungary and challenged its influence as a major power in Europe. The Kingdom of Prussia, which settled to Austria's north, had its eye on Austrian territory as well. Both the Prussian and Austrian empires wanted control of Central Europe and after a disagreement on political decisions made by the Austrian governor regarding the control of Danish territory, the two empires prepared to go to war. Following the ancient proverb of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Otto van Bismarck of Prussia reached out to the new United Italy. The two allies agreed that if Austria and Prussia were to go to war, Italy would join Prussia. Austria knew about this treaty and sent troops south to the Italian-Austrian border as a precaution. They also sent troops north to the Prussian border. To the west of these two nations was the German Confederation, 
which consisted of multiple states, but not a united country yet. Austria asked the German Confederation for help, and the two allied against Prussia and Italy. In response to the new coalition, Prussia invaded the northern states in the German Confederation, intending to eliminate the threat to their western border. After Prussia attacked, Italy declared war, and the Austrian-Prussian War was kicked off. Austria would end up losing the war, and Prussia gained territory in the northern German Confederacy. A portion of Austria's southern territory was awarded to Italy. The northern states would be the North German Confederation. France wasn't happy about the unification of German states, and they were concerned that this new union would result in endangering France's status as one of the dominant empires in Europe. A few years after the North German Confederation was formed, the new union would go to war with France, in the Franco-Prussian War. This short six-month war resulted in over a million casualties for the French, and about 150,000 for the Germans. The Germans would seize a portion of France's territory and align with the southern German states, officially creating the German Empire. Now there's a lot of geography to unpack here, which I can imagine is hard to follow while listening to a podcast. So let me take a second to break down the current powers in Europe. The French Empire was a little larger than it is today, but it's located in the same spot. The country of Italy was a little smaller than it is today, but the newly united state still resided on the boot of Europe. The German Empire would include Prussia, and is located in Central Europe, pretty much where Germany is now, but reached out towards Poland as well. The Austrian-Hungary Empire is to the south of Germany, and borders what is now Bosnia and Herzegovina, and northern parts of Romania. Germans feared that France would launch a retaliation attack after their devastating defeat, so they positioned themselves strategically throughout Europe. Germans set up diplomatic posts near Russia and Austria to build alliances between the nations and provide a quicker response should war break out with France again. They also significantly increased their military as well as their industry. To the south of Austria was the Ottoman Empire, and they were facing problems of their own. In April 1876, there was an uprising in the Balkan states, near the northern part of the empire bordering Austria and Russia. Russians had a long history of war with the Ottoman Empire, and they took advantage of this uprising. A year later, the two nations faced off in the Russo-Turkish War. The Russian Empire aligned with Romania, Bulgarian volunteers, and the principalities of Serbia and Montenegro. This war was catastrophic for the Ottoman Empire ending in a decisive victory for Russia and its allies. The Ottoman Empire lost a lot of its territory, and out of this war, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Greece became independent states. Russia is awarded more territory in the treaty. European countries to the west became concerned about Russia's growth, and they called a conference in Berlin to review the agreement. This meeting is known as the Congress of Berlin and includes Russia, Great Britain, France, Austria-Hungary, Italy, Germany, the Ottomans, and the New Balkan states. 
18 of the 29 articles in the original treaty were revised or removed. The new document returned some land to the Ottomans, which infuriated Russian citizens, and increased tensions with the German Empire. Germany signed a defensive military alliance with Austria in response, and the two empires formed the dual alliance, effectively becoming the major power in Central and Eastern Europe. A few years later, France took advantage of the Ottoman Empire's decline, and they sent 28,000 men and 13 naval warships to seize Tunisia. Italy protested France's decision, and as a result, would join Germany and Austria's alliance in 1882, officially forming the Triple Alliance and adding power to the dominant force in Europe. Two years later, Germany uses its strength to embark on a new colonization policy. They hold the Berlin Conference and establish regulations for colonies and trade in Africa. This conference started the scramble for Africa, and Western European powers headed south to colonize the continent. By the start of World War I, 90% of Africa was under European control. Germany's decision to implement a colonization policy caused further discord between Britain and France. Russia wasn't too keen on Germany's growing power as well, and in 1894, France and Russia signed a secret treaty known as the Franco-Russian Alliance. France then turns to Italy for another secret agreement, and the two countries sign a treaty of neutrality if they should go to war with the Triple Alliance. This was an important strategic decision for France. Two countries of the Triple Alliance, Germany and Italy, bordered their country. The Treaty of Neutrality would eliminate a second front if France would go to war. The continued growth of Germany began to pressure other European powers as well. Germany put a lot of resources into their navy, and soon they grew to a force that rivaled the British Royal Navy. To further divide the continent of Europe, Germany began building a railway that stretched through Austria and into the Ottoman Empire, ending in what is now Baghdad, Iraq. This railway gave Germany access to oil in the Middle East and resulted in many international disputes within the major empires of Europe, especially by the British, who were eyeing that area and desired it for some time now. As a result, Britain, France and Russia signed a military alliance and formally created the Triple Entente. In response to the new alliance, General Count Alfred von Schlieffen, chief of the Imperial German General Staff, developed the Schlieffen Plan. The strategy outlined in his plan would theoretically allow Germany to fight on two fronts, one being along its border with France and the second along its border with Russia. In 1907, Europe was divided into two factions. Central Europe consisted of the Triple Alliance, while surrounding countries formed the Triple Entente. At this point, it seemed inevitable that a war would break out and both factions made a rigorous effort to build up military resources and develop strategies just in case they would go to war. The Ottoman Empire was in its downfall, and it faced another revolution and Unionists put pressure on the Sultan to end his rule and reinstate the Empire's constitution. The Sultan would eventually listen to the Unionists, and the Empire underwent a significant change. 
An election would take place in 1908, and the Committee of Union and Progress established new political parties within the empire. However, many of the politicians running for office were working-class citizens, with no experience at all running a government. Again, Austria-Hungary took advantage of this opportunity, and they seized Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 1908 Bosnian crisis. Austria's decision further angered Russia and Serbia, the neighbor to Bosnia and Herzegovina, whose goal was to unite the southern Slavic people. In 1912, two Balkan wars further decreased the size of the Ottoman Empire, with the creation of Albania. The independent nations the Ottomans lost during the Russo-Turkish War also gained more territory because of these wars. In June 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austrian-Hungary crown, was visiting Sarajevo in the southern tip of the Austrian-Hungary border. He was serving as the inspector general, and he was there to view the military exercise taking place that summer. The Archduke brought his wife on the trip, Sophie. The couple toured the city just as any other visitor would. They shopped in local stores and visited antique markets during their stay. On Sunday, June 28th, the two began their day by attending Mass in a chapel at their hotel. When the service was over, the Archduke sent a telegram to his children stating, quote, Mama and Papa are well. Mama and Papa are looking forward to getting home on Tuesday. Unquote. The couple were sitting in an open car, and they made their way towards Town Hall, driving through streets lined with onlookers. In the crowd were six men with the mission of assassinating the Archduke. They were part of a group known as the Black Hand, a secret military organization formed in 1901 by officers of the Serbian army. Their goal was to unite all the Serbians in the Baltic and expand the country of Serbia. One of the tactics used to achieve this goal was terrorism. The small group of assassins were formed just over the border in the capital city of Belgrade. They were given bombs and Belgium 1910 pistols and headed to Sarajevo in preparation of the Archduke. When the Archduke drove by, one of the assassins in the crowd threw a small dark object at the passing car. Police later identified this object as a Serbian-made pocket bomb. The small explosive flew towards its target. But the driver noticed it, stepped on the gas, and he managed to avoid the explosion. The bomb fell inches behind the vehicle. The car behind the Archduke was hit, and many people were injured from the explosion. But Ferdinand was untouched. His wife received a scratch by shrapnel in her neck, although she wasn't seriously injured. As the vehicle sped off, they passed three other members of the Black Hand, but they didn't fire a shot. The Archduke insisted on visiting the people injured by the initial blast. Concerned for Sophie's safety, he asked his wife to stay behind, but she refused, stating that her place was by his side. The governor of Bosnia was confident the threat from the terrorists was over, and he declared to the Archduke that there wouldn't be any further trouble. He traveled with the couple to the hospital, claiming that the Serbs were only capable of one assassination attempt per day. The convoy made their way along the same path originally planned for the day. 
The governor realized that the driver was going the wrong way, and he ordered him to stop. He pulled over and began to turn around to get back on the correct route. In a crazy coincidence, the car stopped less than five feet from Gavrilo Princip, the 19-year-old leader of the assassin group. Princip pulled out his gun, pointed it at the car, and fired two shots. Initially, it seemed like the assassin missed his target, but soon, blood came spurting out of Ferdinand's mouth. Seeing the blood, Sophie said, quote, For heaven's sake, what happened to you? Unquote. These were her last words, and shortly after asking her question, she fell over with her head falling between her husband's knees. The bullet traveled through the car door, hit her in the groin, and severed an artery in the process. She ended up bleeding to death. The military governor first thought Sophie had fainted, but Ferdinand knew her fate. He pleaded with her, quote, Sophie dear, don't die. Stay alive for our children. Unquote. Other parties in the convoy now approached the Archduke and began to open his tunic to see where he was shot, but the Archduke would wave him off, simply replying, It's nothing. But within minutes, both he and his wife were dead. Princip tried to shoot himself in the head, but someone in the crowd stopped his suicide. He moved to Plan B and swallowed cyanide that he and other members of his gang were given for such an occasion. However, the cyanide was old, and although it made him sick, he wouldn't die from the poison. In prison, Princip would acknowledge his regret for killing Sophie. Austria-Hungary accused Serbia of the assassination, and a month to the day after Archduke Ferdinand was killed, the two countries went to war. Germany's emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, supported his alliance with Austria-Hungary and joined the war effectively beginning World War I on July 28, 1914. For the next couple of days, the empires on the continent of Europe all looked at this conflict in fear, knowing that it could escalate into something a lot bigger. Britain and France understood that the Russians were allied with the Balkans, and if they entered the war, fighting could spread to a full-blown European conflict. The British Foreign Office attempted to influence their counterparts in Germany with the idea of an international convention instead of war, but the German government refused, and they advised Austria-Hungary to proceed with their original plans. Russia reacted by mobilizing four military districts along the Austrian-Hungary border. As a result of Russia's mobilization, Germany launched its military plan supporting Austria-Hungary. They demanded that Russia demobilize its troops, but Russia refused. With little option, Germany declared war on Russia, and they enacted a heavily modified version of the Schlieffen Plan by the Count's successor, Helmuth von Moltke. The new plan called for German troops to travel north through Belgium, then head towards France, surprising French forces and ideally resulting in a quick victory for the Germans. After France was defeated, Germany would focus its resources on Russia. On August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia, and two days later, they declared war on France. This was the exact scenario Schlieffen envisioned, and Germany began to implement their plan. They invade Luxembourg and demand Belgium to allow German troops to pass through their country. 
At this point in the war, Belgium is a neutral party, and they refuse to allow German troops within its border. The next day, Germany invaded Belgium. In response to the invasion, Britain, which guaranteed Belgian neutrality, declared war on Germany on August 4th and began sending troops to the French border. Two days later, Austria declared war on Russia. All allies of the Triple Entente were at war with the German Empire and Austria-Hungary. France's foresight of signing a secret neutrality agreement is paying off, and Italy remains neutral for the time being. With Europe at war, empires began to call on their allies around the world for support. On August 23rd, Japan, an ally of Britain, joined the conflict and declared war on Germany. They prepared their colonies in China and throughout the Pacific for an invasion. While European superpowers were declaring war, President Woodrow Wilson pledged neutrality for the United States. However, the start of the Great War impacted life throughout the globe, and Britain, one of America's closest trading partners, was in the heat of battle. Multiple U.S. ships traveling to Britain were damaged or destroyed by German mines. The war in Europe severely impacted international commerce in the United States, with multiple countries and colonies worldwide beginning to declare war on each other, U.S. involvement seemed inevitable. Even though the United States remained a neutral party, they began to plan for war. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll continue the conversation on World War I and discuss current struggles European nations are dealing with during the war. We'll also introduce the United States' decision to enter World War I and begin talking about the role Marines would play. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. This book takes a detour from the genre I usually recommend during this segment. It's not about military history, and there isn't even a hint of a reference to a Marine. This book is a fable, just a simple story illustrating a moral lesson. I first read it about 15 years ago when I was in Saudi Arabia. I stumbled on it by accident. There wasn't a lot to do in country, and this book was in the community library, so I just grabbed it to kill some time. But without giving too much of the story away, it's about a shepherd in Spain, traveling through the Egyptian desert in search of treasure. And I'm guessing the corny marketing tagline would say something like, but he finds a treasure within. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history to download this audiobook for free and receive a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the tens of thousands of Audible choices. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.